Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Let's Sleep On It, Reclaiming Parenthood, the podcast. And I'm your host, Taylor Kulik, a sleep and well-being specialist and occupational therapist. My mission with this podcast is to examine the parenting narratives that dominate our culture and grow together as parents. Here, we will talk about biological infant sleep, as well as many other parenting-related topics. And you'll also hear real empowering journeys from parents who are parenting against the grain. I hope that you walk away from each episode feeling inspired, empowered, and supported. Please remember that none of the information shared in this podcast is medical advice, and you should always speak with a trusted healthcare provider if you have any concerns. Let's dive into today's episode. Did y'all know that much like we have a gut microbiome, we also have a skin microbiome, which means we have tons of beneficial bacteria on our skin that protect us from pathogens. And did you also know that when you use harsh soaps and chemicals on your body, it can it can kill those bacteria and it can also create other imbalances, pH imbalances, et cetera, within the skin microbiome. So when I learned this information a couple of years ago, I stumbled upon Alivia skincare, and we have been using it exclusively ever since. So Alivia has body cleanser, so it's like a body wash. My entire family uses it, and not only actually do we use it on our skin as body wash, but we also use it for our hair. Like I don't have shampoo for my kids. I use Alivia for my kids. And I love Alivia because not only does it smell amazing, but it's 100% natural and organic. It's non-toxic. It's free of all artificial fragrances and dyes. It's environmentally friendly. And it's not a soap. It is a prebiotic body cleanser. So it actually helps support and nourish that skin microbiome. And it works so well, especially if you have sensitive skin. It can help with eczema, pariasis, body acne, things like that. We love the green tea honeysuckle scent. It smells heavenly. It's so amazing. I usually stock up and get like five bottles at a time so that I can get free shipping. And they last a really long time. Like five or six bottles will last me, my whole family, about a year or so. So you can go to alivia.com. That's A-L-E-A-V-I-A.com and use the code TaylorK15 and that will save you 15% off of all of your Alivia orders. Hi everyone. Today we have a really fun episode. I just think it's, I love talking to fellow OTs. And today I have Rachel Harrington joining me to talk about primitive reflexes. And we're also talking about some other controversial topics like crawling and swaddling and things like that. So you'll definitely definitely want to listen to this one. Rachel Harrington is a pediatric occupational therapy assistant, founder of The Sensory Project, and owner of Sensational Brain, which provides continuing education to therapists and other professionals, as well as custom sensory diet creation technology and products. She works with Harkla, creating therapeutic courses, products, and content, while co-hosting the All Things Sensory by Harkla podcast to help parents, therapists, and educators understand sensory processing as it relates to daily life in an easy to understand way. Rachel's two young children always keep her on her toes and they love hiking, playing sports, and trying new sensory activities. Join her to understand how to put your sensory goggles on to best navigate the sensory world we live in. 
I have to apologize in advance. Again, if you listened to the episode from a couple of weeks ago, um, I recorded both of those episodes on a day when they were working on our internet in our area and we were having rolling internet outages and I was using the hotspot on my phone. Um, and so the connection was not great, but we powered through anyways. So there are some glitchy type things um, with the audio quality in this episode, but I think most of it is pretty good and you can understand um, most of it, but just, you know, I apologize for a little bit of glitchiness. So without further ado, I'm very excited for you guys to listen to this episode. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me today. For those who don't know who you are, would you mind just telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Oh, yes. Hello. Thank you for having me. I'm Rachel. I am a pediatric occupational therapy assistant. I just recently got certified in primitive reflexes as well, which I'm really excited about that. And I have been a therapist for over nine years now and kind of jumped ship from traditional treatment to more of the OT entrepreneurial side. And I have owned businesses. I've sold businesses. I have bought businesses. I am like a serial entrepreneur and <laughs> I love, I love sensory. I love primitive reflexes. I have two young kiddos myself who I am learning. Oh my gosh, so much from, and I have just had a great time teaching parents and therapists and educators just how to put their sensory goggles on. And that's just what I'm so passionate about. So I'm excited to be chatting about it today with you. I love that. I'm excited to talk about this with you today too, because I am also very passionate about sensory. I am probably not as knowledgeable about sensory as you are because I don't actually like work as an OT working with sensory. I really just became interested in sensory when I had my own kids and like exploring my own sensory issues and like their sensory challenges. Um, so I'm so excited to talk about this with you. And I feel like we might have to have you back on to talk more about sensory type stuff. Um, but because today we're going to be focusing on primitive reflexes. And I'm also excited about this because I think this is so important. It's something that a lot of parents really have no idea what primitive reflexes are. It's kind of this confusing, like, I feel like sometimes it's almost a buzzword, like you hear about it more, but it's like, what is it? What are primitive reflexes? And it can impact so much. And so I want parents to know what primitive reflexes are. So Rachel, can you please tell us what are primitive reflexes? Yes, the golden question. So keeping it simple, because that's what I like to do. Primitive reflexes are something that we're all born with. They develop, most of them develop in utero. So while the baby is growing in the body, they all kind of start to develop at different times. And there's a specific time frame that they develop in utero. They are often not integrated, but kickstarted into integration during the birthing process. And I think that's what's so interesting about reflexes. That's something that I'm really passionate about spreading the word about, because when we have birth interventions, when we don't have like that, you know, typical vaginal birth, when we intervene, it can impact the kickstart of integration of those reflexes. So once the reflexes are, you know, developed in you, we have the baby, they are innate primitive movement patterns and skills that are designed to keep the baby alive and safe. And so what's important to know about these primitive reflexes, the, the most common one that most people are aware of is the moral reflex or the startle reflex. That's kind of the example here that I'll 
that I'll explain with, you know, babies typically startle with these, these sounds and with these light changes and these movement patterns. And eventually that goes away or it should go away and integrate. The problem lies when those reflexes don't integrate or when they stay stuck in the body and they don't mature into those higher level reflex patterns. They kind of go dormant in the body or they should. So the challenge is when these reflexes don't go away on that specific timeline, they all have their own specific time they should be integrated or kind of like a time frame similar to milestones. When they don't integrate or go away, they cause a lot of underlying challenges that can impact the child, impact the adult on so many different levels, anywhere from anxiety to bedwetting, to sleeping, to um, crawling, to learning disabilities. The, the potential impacts are huge. And so that's when OT comes into play to help get these reflexes integrated or matured or gone away. So that's kind of primitive reflexes in a nutshell. Mm, that was such a good, like concise, but clear, <laughs> uh, clear explanation. So I really appreciate that. Um, so you've talked kind of about like why it's important that these reflexes integrate or go away. How might a parent know if maybe they have a child who has some unintegrated primitive reflexes? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. It's a difficult question to answer because there are so many potential symptoms. Each reflex has kind of a, you know, five or six common symptoms that we can see if it's not integrated. And it, it depends on the age of the child as well. So for, you know, if we're looking at a five-year-old, this is generally when we'll start to test those reflexes. If we're looking at a five-year-old who is uh, really hypersensitive to sensory input. They're really uncomfortable by movement or gravitationally insecure, or they're just more of that highly sensitive child. We could, we could say maybe their moral reflex is retained, or if they're struggling with balance or postural control or auditory processing or timing and sequencing, we could say maybe their tonic labyrinthine reflex is retained. So all of these reflexes have specific things that they could or could not potentially impact. Everyone is so different and so unique. And that's where it's, that's where it's difficult, but um, there's checklists and whatnot online that you can find. And I can put, I can share a checklist as well with you if you want that kind of outlines what these potential symptoms could be if the reflex is retained. Yeah. I think that'd be super helpful. Um, sure. Okay. So I want to like back up a little bit. You had mentioned, um, you had mentioned the moral reflex and a question that I get all the time. I'm sure you already know what's coming. I know exactly what the question is going to be. It's kind of like a really controversial topic right now. And I tend to kind of stay away from it. I have a pretty balanced opinion on swaddling and yep. its effect on the moral reflexes. I don't particularly like swaddling. I yeah. didn't swallow my swallow swallow. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> I didn't swallow him either. I didn't swaddle my second child. I did try to swallow my first child because I thought I had to and she hated it. Um I prefer my babies to have to be active to be allow allowed to move their limbs freely. However, I don't think swaddling is all bad. I think that it can be used appropriately for sh a short-term period of time. But I know that there are some people that say swaddling is just bad like period and can impact the integration of the Moro reflex specifically. I would love to hear your thoughts on that mm -hmm. as a primitive reflex specialist. Yes. 
I have tried to find the literature that supports swaddling is bad. I haven't found it. So from what I've learned, from what I've read, from all of my experience, swaddling isn't bad if you swaddle correctly. If you let, you know, if you're, if we're following hip precautions, we're making sure that they're safely swaddled. If the child is not swaddled all day, every day, I'm fine with that. If the child has the opportunity to startle during sleep, I feel like that's really beneficial for the moral reflex as well. I think, I think when it gets a bad rap is when, when, you know, people are swaddling their child all day, every day, when they are um, swaddling them too tight. I'm not a fan of the Velcro swaddles or the snoo swaddles, you know, where they strap yeah. them into the little, um, the, little the vibrating basket. little machine thing. Yeah. yeah. Because, and that one's weird to me too, because it's, it's movement plus they're strapped in. So they're really not recognizing they're not having that appropriate adaptive response to the movement anyways, but I, d I don't think there's any harm with swaddling as long as you're doing it the right way. And as long as you're, you know, aware of that moral reflex and you know that in order for the reflex to integrate, the child has to go through that startling pattern. So they have to reinforce, they have to go through that startle. So if they're swaddled all the time, or if they're swaddled every time you lay them down to go to sleep, then they're probably not going to go through that primitive pattern. Therefore, it probably either will take longer to integrate or it might not integrate as quickly. It might not integrate. I really haven't found a lot of consistent literature on it. And I know that there's Instagram accounts out there that are shaming moms and dads for, you know, swaddling their kids. I just, I can't get behind it. I, I think that if we follow our instincts and if we trust kind of our, our knowledge as parents, we can recognize that, oh yeah, we probably shouldn't be strapping our child into this device all day, every day. I just, I feel like that's, that's number one is trusting our gut and, and making sure that they have the ability for that free movement, um, during their waking hours and as, as well during their naps too. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's kind of a, a balance, like use it if you really need it, if your child is really upset and you, it helps to calm them down for a little bit. Right. But I think the problem is maybe where Parents, I think, feel like swaddling is just what you do. Like yeah. a lot of parents don't even know that, no, you don't have to swaddle. They just think that if their children are supposed, their babies are supposed to be swaddled. Mm -hmm. And then I think a lot of parents are using it for every sleep time. And so I think maybe that's mm -hmm. the concern because I get asked a lot, like, if I don't have my baby swaddled, they startle, how do I stop them from them from startling? And it's this really hard thing to answer because, well, I understand that startling isn't ideal for us especially mm -hmm. in terms of sleep and at night, because it makes our baby wake up more, thus waking us up more. And at the same time, like you're saying, the baby also has to be able to have an experience that startle reflex for it to properly integrate. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's like a balance, but would you say that, do you think that it could cause delayed in reflex integration if a baby is swaddled every time they sleep for their entire duration of sleep? I don't know, to be honest, mm -hmm. I don't know if that would be enough to, to delay integration or if, if they're really focused about tummy time play during wake windows, if they're really focused on free movement play 
during wake windows if they're removing the swaddle by six weeks. Um, I I don't feel like it would impact it, but I, I feel like you have to follow like some specific guidelines in order to not have repercussions from swaddling every sleep. I just personally, I wouldn't. I just, I don't feel like the benefit outweighs I don't know, the challenge or the potential challenge. So I think that following your baby's lead, if they need more input, then give them more input in other ways and, and see how they respond to that. But, you know, going along with what you were saying, we feel like we need to be swaddling babies, you know, ever since the back to sleep campaign came out in the nineties, gross motor development has delayed as like been pushed back 20%. Mm. And I feel like that's so interesting because with swaddles, you obviously can't put your baby on their tummy when they're swaddled. And I feel like, you know, maybe you agree, but you know, sleeping on their bellies is really important for development. And I think those, those supervised nap times can be really helpful. Those contact naps can be really helpful and prone. I feel like swaddling really, takes that out of the equation. And when babies are being swaddled all the time, they're really not getting any of that prone sleep time. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. I think this is also such a controversial topic. So controversial. Um, I know. I'm here for the tough conversations. Okay. I'm here for it. Yes. I mean, of course, of course, the back to sleep campaign, it was implemented to improve safety and to reduce risk of SIDS death. And of course, that's a great thing. And we want that. However, I feel like we don't, and I'm saying we like collectively as a general like society and, and healthcare professionals and all of that, we don't focus enough on the ramifications of that. And when we're changing what babies naturally want to do, which for most of them, it's to sleep on their bellies. Um, and a lot of babies sleep better on their bellies. And you're talking about the development stuff and the tummy time and the, the core strength and development and all of this wonderful stuff that babies have to have to develop and to grow and to meet their milestones and all of that. What are the ramifications of saying babies now have to be put to sleep on their back every time? And now what are the ramifications of swaddling them and then strapping them into the snoo and all of this? I mean, we have to be talking about both sides of it. We can't just talk about safety without also talking about development. If at the very least saying, okay, now parents here's what might happen because we're putting babies to sleep on their backs. And here is maybe, here are some things that maybe you could incorporate into the day in order to help reduce the potential risks of this, if that makes sense. Yeah. But, and then one thing to, a lot of, a lot of babies will only sleep on their bellies. I like a whole nother topic is airway, (laughs) airway stuff. If you're, if your baby is an airway baby, airway obstructed baby or child, they are most likely sleeping on their bellies and parents are being told this is not okay. You need to flip them over. You need to sleep train X, Y, Z, whatever. But a lot of these parents, they, they would literally be putting their baby at risk if they tried to force them to sleep on their back because they are flipping onto their belly to open up their airway. And so that is one of my biggest frustrations with all of these, like these one size fits all recommendations that just don't work for every child. And they're, they're not looking into, well, why can that baby not sleep on their back? They're just saying sleep train instead of addressing the root issue, which is a really significant issue airway. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Sorry, went off a t- on a tangent there. No, but. It's, it's 100% all connected. And I could not agree more. Even like the modifications that these babies will do in order to survive and they should be doing, they're figuring out in order to thrive. 
we're, you know, someone, some, someone somewhere said, Hey, you need to do this. And, and I almost feel like it's taking away just our, our parental instincts. Yeah. There's these people who are telling us you need this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And it's like, but that doesn't fit for my baby. So why should I force my child into doing something that isn't safe for them? And so I, I just feel like us as parents are losing that ability to clinically reason and think about what is best for our child and what's safest for our child. And I feel like that conversation about airway is so important. So, so So important. important. It's my soapbox. I mean, I have two airway children and I, I, I have worked with families before parents before who came to me desperate because their baby wasn't sleeping and their baby would only sleep on their belly. And when I talked to them, I realized this is an airway baby. Like, you know, um, and they went to their pediatrician and their pediatrician just said, let him cry it out in the crib. Well, what is that going to do for an airway baby that puts them in danger? address their airway issue, but, but pediatricians don't know most, most pediatricians, I'm not going to speak for all of them. Most of them don't know about airway issues. They don't know what an obstructed airways look like, what they present like, and they're not helping these parents. Instead, they're just giving them these one size fits all. And I totally agree about removing that parental instinct or intuition piece. And I think it's really interesting because our culture is all about, oh, listen to your body, for every other thing, right? Listen to your body, trust your body. I feel like that's that's really common now to just say something like that. I was actually just talking to my last podcast episode guest about this. But what about our baby's bodies? Are we listening to our baby's signals? Our babies are smart too and they're wise too and they know what their body needs. And if they're doing something, it might be for a reason. And so maybe we should also be listening to our babies and their bodies and what signals they're giving off that could help give us clues and insight into what they're experiencing. Yes. I feel like we lack the ability to recognize what those clues are telling us. You know, so many parents are like, well, why is my baby sleeping on their tummy? I, I don't know, you know, and I feel like there's no, there's no checklist, unfortunately, that says, you know, if your baby is doing X, Y, and Z, it could be, and I feel like the pediatrician should have this in their office. Like if your baby is doing this, it could be because of this. So let's identify that root cause and let's figure out what we can do in order to help them instead of just saying, cry it out. Yes. And I think this is such a complicated conversation because our society is really focused on safety, physical safety, which is of course important, but in being so focused on physical safety, we totally disregard every other aspect of the conversation, like emotional health, like Mm -hmm. health issues, right? So we've already talked about several of those things. And that's really problematic because really like you and I aren't sitting here having this conversation telling parents, it's okay if your baby sleeps on their tummy. Like that's not the point of this conversation Mm -hmm. because obviously there are some safety risks to that, but we're just so focused on safety alone that we're not talking about the other uh, the other puzzle pieces. And I think when we get to that point, it's almost like we have this tunnel vision and mm-hmm. we can't see anything else, else outside of physical safety, physical safety, physical safety. And so all of these other issues, who our baby is, what health issues they have, what feeding issues they have, et cetera, kind of just get brushed under the rug, if that makes sense at all. It really does. Yeah. It's a soapbox. It's a conversation we could have. It's a challenging conversation, but I think that we need to be having these challenging conversations in order to help people ask themselves why and to find the underlying cause and what is what's in your child's best interest. What are their cues telling you? How can we support them emotionally and mentally and not only physically? There's so much more than just like 
gross motor milestones and making sure that they're, they're physically safe. There's so much that goes into it. So I'm glad we right. could kind of Yes. Yes. That was great. That was great. Um, okay. Back to reflexes. So, okay. So if a primitive reflex is not integrated, we call it a retained primitive reflex, right? So what type of daily activities do retained reflexes, um, or can they, what type of daily activities can retained reflexes have a negative impact on? Literally everything, everything is kind of the problem, right? Exactly. exactly. How do you identify it? Yeah. And, and how do you identify what's the primitive reflex? What's a sensory challenge? What came first? What, you know, the chicken or the egg, um, the, the trick is like sensory and primitive reflexes. They're so closely connected. If you think about the, the triangle, the, the pyramid of needs, right. Sensory and primitive reflexes and basic needs are, are at the bottom and at the top is academic learning and daily occupations, we can't reach those higher level academic skills. We can't reach those higher level cognitive skills without that strong foundation. And if we remove a block, let's say we remove the primitive reflex section because their reflexes are retained, that's going to impact the, the strength of that foundation. And so things like eating, tolerating different textures, um, swinging, maintaining that good postural control, walking upstairs, um, emotional regulation, really anything that you do during your day, there is a potential that it could be negatively impacted from primitive reflexes. But I will say that the challenge is really figuring out, is it the primitive reflex or is there another challenge? Like, is there a diagnosis that we need to find? And, and is that impacting it? Well, oftentimes if there is a diagnosis, then the chances of those reflexes being retained are also higher. So it's really, it's really all connected. And I, I know I say that all the time, but it's, it's all connected. It it's so important. I'm going to die saying that. Yeah, so it is all connected. Well, and I think it's really interesting because we were talking a little bit about airway and a lot of times those symptoms also overlap with like airway issues. That's why it's so hard. Cause I, I work on sleep, right? I work on infant and child sleep and holistically, and I will get questions like, why is my baby sleeping like this? Or what, why are they waking up? And I'm like, okay, well, there are 5 million reasons why this could be happening. Like you really have to get a big picture view of what's going on. Um, and, and, and actually like also a small picture view of what's going on, yeah. like really detail oriented to figure out what might be causing what, because airway issues can cause sleep issues. Primitive reflex, uh, retained prim primitive reflexes can cause sleep issues. Sensory stuff can cause sleep issues. And then 500 other things can also cause sleep issues. Right. And that's true of like every other domain, right? Like every other daily activity. And mm -hmm. so it's really tough, but it really is all connected because when you think about it, like you were talking about the hierarchy of needs. Like the, all, a lot of that stuff is really on the, the bottom, the foundations. And so when something is off, it impacts everything else. And you have to figure out what is going on in that foundation that is causing the specific challenges that you're experiencing with your child. That's what I struggle a lot with, with my own kiddos, because in the clinic I can, you know, I can give all the ideas, I can give all the suggestions and we can figure it out. But with my own kiddos, it's so much harder for me to be like, okay, well, these needs are met. We're doing great here. What it's so hard for me working, not working, but like identifying with my own kiddos, what the underlying it is hard. 
it is hard. I feel like it's so helpful to get an outsider's view when you're, when you're working with your own kids, you can have all of the information in the world, but when you're a parent, you just miss some things or you see things differently. Like you don't, you, you don't, you're not taking an outsider's kind of whole view. You're biased. You have different perspectives. Like it's, it is really, really challenging. I feel the same way. Yeah. It's hard. (laughs) Um, okay. So what let's, since we already kind of mentioned sleep a little bit, can you tell me how retained reflexes impact sleep? Cause that's really what the parents want to know. I, my, my child has a sleep issue. Could it be retained reflexes? Yes. I, I first want to, this is for a little bit older kiddos, but I first want to touch on the spinal gallant reflex, because this is one that I think is so important for kiddos who are Um, you know, struggling with potty training or struggling with like irritable bowel syndrome or digestive issues or bedwetting past the time that they shouldn't be wetting the bed, Um, five, six, seven-year-olds. And the spinal gallant reflex is one when you provide tactile stimulation to their spine, it elicits like um, kind of a, a bend towards that stimuli. And in infants, it also elicits urination. So for a child who is, you know, rolling in bed or the sheets or the blanket or their pajamas kind of tickle them in the wrong way or, or something, something kind of just provides that stimuli to their back, it can potentially elicit urination. And it's not because they can't control it. It's not because that they're being naughty. It's reflexive. And you think about when you're, you know, when, uh, when the doctor hits your kneecap and your knee just goes, Whoop! like reflexively it, it extends out, you can't control it. And that's exactly how these reflexes are. You can't mm-hmm. control them because they are reflexes. And so the spinal gallant is one that we want to identify for those kiddos with, um, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, especially adults with irritable bowel syndrome, um, asymmetrical gait patterns, things like Um, wetting the bed so we can identify if that is retained that could be a potential for impacting sleep Um, but some of the other reflexes I would say one of the biggest ones would be the moral reflex because it's it kind of keeps that body in a state of fight or flight and if we are feeling like we're in fight or flight it's a lot harder to rest and digest and we've got those stress hormones that are constantly being um, just poured into our system because we are in that fight or flight, that cortisol is just constantly being expressed into our bodies. So I would say the biggest one is that moral reflex. And so making sure that one is integrated would be the first one that I'd look at for sleep challenges for sure. Mm. Back to the spinal gallant. That's really interesting. And I haven't mm-hmm. thought about that. What I can't remember what age is that usually, um, integrated typically? Usually- it's a wide range, usually from like three to nine months. Okay. So pretty early on. Cause that mm-hmm. actually got me thinking about elimination communication. Do you know what elimination communication is? Okay. I've, I have tried like a little bit of elimination communication with um, my kids, but we didn't do full out elimination communication. And both of them, um, like my daughter was in diapers until she was like at night until she was, I think four. Um, but I do wonder is elimination communication even possible then at night? if they don't have this um, reflex integrated, because I know a lot of parents do EC and they, they do it at night too. Like their, their baby's fine at night. They don't, they don't put a diaper on them. So I just wonder how that impacts their little baby. I, I would assume if the reflex would integrate on a normal timeline, if it's integrated by three, six, nine months, I feel like 
it would be a lot easier to do the elimination communication at night. Right. I know like some parents don't have their babies in diapers at night ever. Like they're hardcore about EC. So I just wonder, that was just like the most random question, but that's where my brain went when you were talking about this. Um, So yeah, interesting. All right. So say a parent thinks that they, or suspects that their child might have some retained reflexes. Where do they go from there? And is it even possible to address these things, these issues? Yes. I would say the first place, if you are concerned, I would just kind of do like a quick checklist. Like I'll send you a little checklist that you can do. Um, get an idea if, if your child has, you know, we always say like three or more checklists check boxes in the, in one area, then the likelihood of the reflex being retained increases. So then we'd want to do more formal testing and we don't generally formally test in occupational therapy, um, until like four five, six years old. And so for our younger toddlers, like my own kiddo, when, when we're working on like reflex integration activities, you know, it's really difficult to formally test because you can't get them into these positions. They can't follow the instructions. And so what we do is participate in more of like the functional activities that help promote integration. And we, we just kind of modify some of the activities. So regardless if the reflexes are retained or not, some of the activities are just really beneficial for the nervous system regardless. And I always recommend them. And I feel like any activity that's working on the brain is not going to be harmful at all, regardless of the reflexes. But you'll notice that some of the activities are a lot harder for the younger kiddos if, and they're a little, maybe they might have adverse reactions as well, um, if those reflexes are more likely retained. But for our younger kiddos, we just want to focus on movement. We want to focus on play and just I say quote unquote normal childhood activities, but unfortunately when I say that, I feel like normal childhood activities are different nowadays, but like, you know, swinging and climbing and climbing a tree and, and log rolling down hills, you know, all of those normal movement activities are really helpful for the nervous system and for reflexes too. Yeah. Well, that brings me kind of back to a question I guess I should have asked earlier is what are some causes of reflexes not being properly integrated? Good question. There's not a ton of definitive research as to this happens. So therefore the reflex is going to be retained later on. So from my research, what I found is the birthing process can definitely be impactful of these reflexes mm-hmm. as well as you know anything happening in utero drugs alcohol trauma extensive stress um maternal sickness during specific weeks of like severe maternal sickness during specific weeks of the pregnancy um extreme um morning sickness like really extreme to the point of like the hg um so really just think of like stressful, stressful things on the body can, can impact these reflexes. The birthing process, we found that um, C-section births can impact specifically the spinal gallant and the ATNR because those reflexes are designed to help like corkscrew the baby out of the birth canal. And so that's kind of what I was mentioning earlier, where those reflexes are kickstarted by the birthing process. Mm-hmm. And so if we're, if they're not being kickstarted by those, those, you know, typical birthing processes, then really the biggest thing that I want to want to share is like, 
however the baby is born, it's fine. It's okay. We just need to be aware of, okay, there's a potential that these reflexes might not integrate. So let's be aware of it and let's be proactive instead of reactive and implement some specific activities and, and things to just be aware that these reflexes might not integrate. Um, any type of diagnosis, you know, autism, ADHD, Down syndrome, any specific diagnosis, cerebral palsy can definitely impact the reflexes and most often will. So I think just from um, a trauma side and then from like a diagnosis side, those are like the biggest, the biggest things that I've found. Yeah. I wonder, could it, could reflexes be in, uh, affected by like a baby not getting enough free movement? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Cause yeah. I always wonder, like, I think that just things have changed so much. Mm -hmm. Um, and we now have like a lot of babies are in containers all day and, you know, it, yeah. it's just, I think kids just aren't getting as much free play and movement as they used to. And I just wonder, um, even for babies, if that is impacting, it has to be impacting their development, yeah. but specifically if it's impacting their reflexes. 100%, um, containers, car seats, strollers, when babies are strapped in and they're not, they're not getting that free movement time on the floor. I've, I've even found articles that talk about, uh, clothing and how clothing can impact mm. a baby's, you know, crawling by pattern. being restrictive. Yeah. That, that makes like, sense. You know, you put a baby, a baby girl in a dress and they can't crawl in the normal, like quadruped crawling mm -hmm. position because their knees are getting stuck on their dress. So they end up in a bear crawl or like kind of a janky crawl. Um, so I think that's really important or they're too tight and they can't move. Um, I think to babies that are, that are just left on their backs too long, they're left on their tummies too long, you know, anything that's, they're not, you know, being engaged with appropriately. Um, but I would say a big one that I've seen is containers and generally with torticollis and plagiocephaly, we can, we can assume that maybe that will come. Those reflexes will come. They will not integrate if we aren't intervening early enough. Um, so it's just something to be aware of. Yeah. And again, it's not like to, to shame or to make you feel bad if, you know, you use, cool. we the all, I think we all, enough. yeah. And like, we all use containers sometimes. Like I have definitely put my babies in strollers and of course we all have to use car seats, but it's just yeah. being aware, just being aware, being trying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And trying to limit the time as much as possible, trying to prioritize the times you really need to use those specific containers versus not. Again, I think this is one of those things. A lot of parents just think of containers as something that you use with babies. Like they need the bouncer and the jumper and the swing. And like parents, I think parents sometimes need to be given permission that you actually don't need all the baby stuff. Like sometimes it's convenient. Sometimes it's nice. Use it when you need it. But it's not like a part of your baby's development is to put them in containers. And I honestly think that parent, a lot of parents think that it is now because of the marketing that is out there. The marketing is exceptional. And I really want to have a conversation with those marketers for the jumper and the walkers and the bouncers. Mm -hmm. I personally didn't use any of them with my kiddos because I, I knew like, well, if we have to go eat, you know, a dinner, we just leave the baby on the floor. Right. And for the right. most part, 
the baby is fine on the floor if, yeah. if everything's fine, but you know, sometimes babies don't love to be on the floor and that's okay too. Um, but everything in moderation, if you're going to go on, if you're, if you have to drive to the grocery store and it's a 30 minute drive, I always try to prepare beforehand or afterwards. Okay. I know I'm, they're going to be in the car seat for 30 minutes. So I'm going to make sure that we get 30 minutes of floor time before we have to go in the car seat and 30 minutes after the car seat. So just being mindful and kind of planning your day around how often you're going to use the car seat or a specific container, like, Oh, set my timer on Siri. Um, yeah. baby's been in the, the jumper for 15 minutes or not the jumper. Cause I wouldn't actually recommend a jumper, the, the yeah. bouncer for 15 minutes. Okay. Time to hop out and we'll, and we'll change position. So tools like that can be really helpful as well. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Last question I'm going to leave you with is a really controversial question. I want to know your oh, opinion. Boy. I want to know your opinion since we've hit the other controversial topics. Is crawling a milestone? Is it an important milestone? It is the most beneficial <laughs> milestone. I I can even, I can't, there's not enough good things that I can say about crawling. It's an it's as innate as blinking. It's 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 something that mothers should do when they're pregnant. It's something that adults should do with with neuro neuro challenges, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. It's something that babies need to do to develop their arches, their upper body strength, their ocular motor skills, their proprioception, their vestibular system, bilateral integration, their integrate their primitive reflexes. It's something that if a baby doesn't crawl, the likelihood that their STNR is going to be retained increases by twofold. It is something that I am so freaking passionate about. This is my hot topic. So I'm glad <laughs> you asked me. Um, I'm working on a curriculum right now that has to do with crawling. And I just, I feel like if you want a, like a cure-all crawl, like that's how I feel about it. Like if you want, yeah. if you want to see improvements in anything, just get down on the floor and crawl. Yeah. So yeah it is I just hot. went through uh, like a 12 week um, crawling program, basically brain reorganization, reorganization program that involved lots of crawling, uh, like 10 minutes of crawling a day, which is a long time. If you haven't crawled, yeah. it's like five minutes at a time, like the army crawl. And then the, the quadruped, um, mm -hmm. with my daughter, I did this with my daughter. It's in the cortex. I actually had them on my podcast, I think last season or the season before, but, um, I mean, it's so beneficial. It's amazing to learn about all the benefits of crawling. And I don't really know why it's become so controversial to say that crawling is important. Um, but yeah. why, why should pregnant women crawl? I'm just curious. Like, so I will never forget. I used a midwife. I used the same midwife for my pregnancies and they handed me this packet of information of like, you know, labor and delivery and what you should do. And I will never forget reading this like big, bold paragraph that, that basically said crawling is as innate as blinking and that pregnant women need to be crawling to get the baby in the right position. Mm -hmm. Um, for labor, it provides sensory input for the baby in utero. It's good for mom. It's good for baby. Um, and I also just, I feel like it's, it's one of those things that it's just not talked about enough for prepping for labor. And I think that you get down on the floor and you crawl for a few minutes and it can, it can help get the baby where they need to be. It can help strengthen and prepare for labor or labor in that way. Um, it's, I just, I'll never forget like getting down on the floor and just crawling around, you know, yeah, 38 weeks pregnant, trying to get the baby where, where we need to be. So yeah, it's, that makes a lot of sense. 
I did a lot of other exercises for positioning and stuff, but I don't think I ever crawled, but that actually makes a lot of sense that it would help with positioning and everything. Yeah. Like, why not? Like also, it's not that hard. I mean, I feel like it would probably be pretty good exercise when you're pregnant. We're talking like quadruped hands and knees crawling, not like the army crawl, right? Because we can't do that when I'm pregnant. I can barely do that when I'm not pregnant. No bear crawling, just hands and knees. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for answering. Um, I feel the same way. I get really annoyed when people say that crawling is not important um, because it is. And it doesn't mean that your child, if your child doesn't crawl, again, it's not shaming. It doesn't mean that your child will have issues. I think a lot of parents get defensive when they hear that if they have a child who maybe skipped crawling. Well, my child is, you know, doesn't have any issues and blah, blah, blah. And that's great. But the reality is that crawling is really important for development. And just because your child isn't experiencing something very specific doesn't mean that other children who skip crawling won't or that crawling wouldn't benefit your child. And and you can still crawl. Like that's the thing. Kids can still crawl after they're walking. Get on the floor and play with them and crawl. It will help so much. Yes. If a child skipped crawling, put some tunnels on the ground, put some painter's tape on the ground, drive your cars on the ground, crawl, crawl, crawl. you're never too old to crawl yeah like you didn't miss the window necessarily there is still time that if you miss that milestone then it should be definitely yeah exactly yeah exactly so that's always my advice I'm never trying to like tell someone that they their child is gonna be messed up because they didn't crawl I'm like it's important so you should get down on the floor and crawl as well with your child right it's gonna be beneficial for them right yeah Okay, Rachel, I enjoyed this conversation so much. I feel like we're going to have to do it again and talk about something else related to sensory or crawling or something. Um, But could you just leave us with, for anybody who wants to learn more from you, can you tell them where they can find you and what resources you have to offer? Yes, I have a lot. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, I would start with uh, my Instagram at the sensory project 208. Um, I share a lot there. And then I have a primitive reflex summit on sensational brain and you can find that. I highly recommend it. There's more resources geared towards younger children and school-age children there as well. I have another course on Harkla, H-A-R-K-L-A.co that we've put together for a little bit more geared towards parents, but we will have some AOTACs for that as well. Um, just lots of functional reflex integration activities. Um, uh, we have a podcast as well. It's called All Things Sensory by Harkla. So yeah, we talk about all the things everywhere. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please subscribe and leave a review if you feel called to. It really helps our message reach more parents. You can also follow me on Instagram at Taylor Kulik for similar content or visit my website at www.taylorkulik.com. I offer online courses where we really dive into infant and toddler sleep holistically. And we also offer one-to-one holistic sleep support services if you're looking to improve your child's sleep or shift patterns without sleep training. If you know a parent who would benefit from this podcast, please share. And if you'd like to financially support this podcast to allow me to create more episodes more often, you can visit anchor.fm slash Taylor I hope you'll join me next time.